powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a big thank you to my last guest, John Pethke. I hope all of my single members of Duval Nation got to check out Corey More. And if you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to episode 210, and we have a powerful episode lined up for you today. At the Derek Duvall Show, we are known for interviewing people who have done extraordinary things with their lives. And today's guest has done something extraordinary, survive a horrific, abusive, narcissistic marriage. We have on the show today, Dana S. Diaz. Now, Dana will be discussing her incredibly terrible decades of abuse, how she escaped her marriage, how she turned those tragic years into a powerful memoir called Gasping for Air, The Stranglehold of Narcissistic Abuse, and how she spends her days using her activism to educate the world of the dangers of narcissism. Dana is a walking inspiration, and we were very lucky to have her on the show. Plus, when I told Duval Nation she was coming on the show, my female listeners wrote in with so many questions that Dana answered as many as we could get to. Lots to unpack here, so let's get Dana out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, Dana S. Diaz. Dana, good evening. Welcome to the show. How is the weather out by you today? It was a little cold and rainy, typical fall weather in the Midwest, but it's all good. I got hot cocoa. I got a heater going. Life is good inside. So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Well, it was interesting because, well, we'll get into my story and and why I'm on this podcast today, but my pandemic was spent locked in a house with somebody that was violent, wanted me dead, and I couldn't leave. So (laughs) um, legally or physically. So uh, it was interesting, but I'm glad it's all over now, the, the pandemic and the marriage. Fair enough. Fair enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? Um, I was born in Chicago. I didn't have the best childhood either, but I loved the vibe of the city. I will say that um, definitely a big melting pot of every ethnicity and every color under the sun. And it's a beautiful thing, actually, to be able to have experienced that. And the food is just amazing. I've never had 
food like I have had in the city because you could go to Chinatown and have some of that. You could go to 26th Street and have the most amazing Puerto Rican food. You could have the best pizza and hot dogs. I'm sorry, New York, but we have them in Chicago. But yeah, I, I love the food up there. It was definitely a good thing, but I was spoiled. So now I can't find any good food where I live now. All right, so you're from Chicago. <laughs> what sports team do you cheer for? Uh-oh. I I am going to plead the I don't cheer for any particular team, but I was a North Side girl, so I guess we're a Cubbies fan. Okay. No, that's fine. No, no, no judgment. <laughs> I'm here. not sure if there's any real Chicago Bears fans, but you know, I'm gonna go for the Cubbies over the Sox. Oh, you are. Huh? I am, I am. That's why that's why I had to ask. I had to ask. Well, <laughs> I like the Bears when they had the Super Bowl shuffle out, yeah. you know, seeing the fridge try to dance. That was amazing. Right, right now we wear paper bags <laughs> over our heads because yeah. we just suck so bad right now. But yeah. still. All right. So what were your earliest career aspirations? Oh, earliest? Like, I think in fourth grade, I wanted to be an astronaut, but then the Challenger blew up that same year. So I changed my mind. (laughs) After that, I thought I wanted to be a lounge singer, but I can't sing for crap. So uh, nobody wants to hear that. I know that's a really weird thing to want to be, but it just seems swanky and cool. Then I had this little bit between high school and college about wanting to be a child and family law attorney. But then I saw how many people get off on crimes they've actually committed. And I didn't think I could live without that because I'd probably end up in jail myself. So here I am. And now I just write books and and talk on podcasts. Fair enough. (laughs) What are some of your favorite memories from DePaul? DePaul. I don't really have like any outstanding memories. It was like the first time in my life I actually had to try and study because grade school and high school were a little, I guess, easy for me. I was one of those kids that didn't really have to study or try too hard. But when you're in college you, you and you place in these, you know, in calculus and philosophy and these very, uh, more advanced uh, things that I was uh, not used to than you have to actually study. So I think it, it, it definitely uh, prepared me. It gave me character, I suppose. <laughs> okay. All right. For my listeners who may not be aware, you were trapped in a relationship with an abusive narcissist for nearly three decades, correct? Yes. Tell us about that. Well, there's a lot to tell. You know, I, my stepfather that I was raised by was a narcissist and I was also abused as a child. So I left home as soon as I could 18 years old. I was out. I fortunately had places I could stay and, you know, couches to sleep on and and what have you. But, you know, I always look back and think, man, how did I fall for this guy when I knew, I mean, he was a walking red flag to me. The, the moment I met him, he reminded me of my stepfather. I thought he actually was a jerk. I thought he felt entitled to servitude. Um, and I wasn't about to give in to that type of personality. I thought been there, done that, not my thing. But unfortunately, looking back, because I had been raised you know, the verbal abuse was the worst in in my childhood home, being told every day that nobody ever wanted me, I shouldn't have been born, my mother was going to abort me, 
you know, I, they shouldn't have to pay for me. I was told that too. Just some awful things. So you have to understand, I was starving for love. I was starving for somebody to deem me deserving of their attention or of anything. So when this jerk expressed interest in hanging out with me, I thought, well, maybe I'm being too picky. Maybe I need to give it a shot. Maybe I don't really know him. Maybe he just came off that way. Well, no, it it wasn't any better when we hung out the first time. You know, he he was like a frat boy, was very disrespectful to me, actually spewed beer onto me a few times because he was amused by how appalled I was that that he would invite me to watch a movie with him and then, you know, <laughs> spit on me basically. It was very humiliating and demeaning. So Fast forward, you know, I continued to give him a try. I kept thinking, oh, well, you know, he was just drinking too much. Oh, he must have had a bad day when he had that angry outburst. Oh, he didn't mean to put the hockey stick through the wall. You know, he was just really upset with me. Maybe I shouldn't provoke him. I kind of started turning into my mother without realizing it. I was enabling and excusing it and basically putting myself in the same situation but it was what was familiar to me. So, you know, the, uh, the other nugget in this is that my mother had always told me that my stepfather was so abusive towards me because that just showed how much he loved me. So I was in my head thinking, well, if he must love me, this man, if he's mistreating me so badly. But it just would get worse and worse as time went by. But in the middle of all these bad episodes were all these really wonderful, you know, times with him where we would laugh and he was very affectionate and very loving and, and complimentary. And, you know, so I was always kind of trying to negotiate this dynamic of, you know, it's like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, I never knew what I was getting and it could switch in a second, but I took the bad because I knew the good would come. And I took, you know, I took the good for whatever I could because that's all I wanted was to be loved and wanted by somebody. Unfortunately, it just kept getting worse. We get married. We have a baby. Once that baby came and he wasn't number one, that's when it all went to complete crap. And our son was born in 2003. Within a month, you know, I was out of the bedroom. I don't think I ever, I, I returned to our bed, our marriage bed, so to speak, a couple of times up in the next 17 years. But for the most part, that was it. Um, he didn't want me in the room because my attention was focused on our son. Um, and so I was being ridiculed and berated for that. Then he started threatening suicide. Then threats to kill himself turned into threats to kill me. So fast forward 2018, I get really, really sick. And I mean like so sick that I can't even tear toilet paper off the roll. I can't pick up a dryer sheet. It's taking everything in me just to breathe and move. And I'm a cross country coach. I'm fit. I, I you know, I'm not lazy or, you know, I, I'm not even overweight. I was actually, I, I actually dropped to 93 pounds during this time. I was skeletal. 
took a long year of tests and specialists and a lot of doctors throwing their hands in the air, having no idea what was wrong with me. Only I had about two dozen random symptoms nobody could piece together um, to make sense of what was going on. Finally got with a neurologist that got me with Mayo Clinic. And it turned out that I had had so much cortisol, which is a stress hormone running through my body for so long that it had given me this lung disease. That's why you hear this raspiness in my voice. It's a very rare lung disease. Sim it, the doctor says it's like having COPD and fibromyalgia all at the same time, which is why I was having all these seemingly unrelated symptoms. But it also presented an issue because without my lungs breathing and nothing they could really do about it, my heart wasn't cooperating. My digestive system wasn't cooperating. My brain wasn't functioning very well. So I was even having blurred vision and blackouts while driving. Um, you know, my doctor even said, your feet are going to be next to go because your muscles and everything else, you know, and I just said, no, if I can't walk, I mean, this is getting ridiculous. And what was going to happen to me if I got that sick that I couldn't take care of myself? And I'm in a house with this man who <laughs> has told me he wants me dead. And, and he had already swung a crowbar at my head. We'd already had a prescription medication situation where he dragged me, basically left me to die in the bathroom. Only I surprised us both and woke up. You know, we had a lot of things that had happened. And, and yes, a normal person would think, well, I would have left. I would have, I would have. Yeah, well, I would have left when he cheated on me the first time, but he cheated on me numerous times and I was still there. It's not as easy just to pick up and leave, especially when you have a mortgage and kids and your families are intertwined and, you know, all these things that keep you bound to this relationship. So I was there for whatever my reasons, I was still there, but getting sick and having to face this, you know, reality of, okay, is he going to just let me die then? I mean, he'd not even been to one appointment with me. He hadn't even cared, honestly, that I was sickly. I think he took it, took advantage of it so that he could get pity from others because he was this covert narcissist. He thrived on the pity other people would give him like, oh, poor you with a sick wife. You know, I think it would have suited him for me to die so he could take my life insurance and go cry to everybody that he was this widowed single father now and God help my son if that would have ever happened. So I got a little stronger about that point. Doctor told me that my body was actually shutting down, faced with mortality in my early 40s. I'm thinking, okay, Dana, where are you? Where is that little girl that used to fight back against her stepfather and tell him what was going to happen when he would mistreat me? You know, I was a fiery little one. I'd always fought for injustices on the playground, even when other kids were getting bullied. I was the one who would stand up against them, no matter what the consequence. I had to dig in myself and find that girl again because I wanted to live and I wasn't going to let this guy get away with having done this to me. Um, so that's what I did. I, I went and talked to the sixth attorney in, in the 20 uh, years that we'd already been together. And unfortunately, a week or two later, we went under the shelter in place for COVID. So that was a little dicey. I lived in the basement pretty much already. So I started keeping a record because I wanted as little interaction as I could have with him. I started keeping a record in a notebook 
of everything that was being said, everything that was happening, text messages, whatever, because I needed to make sure if something happened and was made to look like an accident or whatever it was, that people would know who did it. Because unfortunately, when you're a victim of abuse, you know, we were going to the school functions and games and things with smiles and cupcakes and eating hot dogs. And he'd put his arm around me, you know, it was a big show. And people say narcissists wear these masks. Well, so do the victims in public because we don't want anyone to know because if we expose them, we're the ones that are going to suffer the consequences. So nobody had any idea. So we're stuck in the house together during covid He's playing games, pulling light bulbs out of lights, turning the water off to the toilet in the basement where I was staying, different things like this, just trying to taunt me and and force me out. But, you know, I, I didn't let it force me upstairs. I stayed in my basement and stayed safe. But I ended up taking these records that I was keeping in my notebook and elaborating them on my laptop into the stories. And those stories are what eventually became my book. Because when I got out of that relationship and out of that marriage, it actually got most violent after the marriage, ironically, um, after the divorce. But I really felt a responsibility for people to understand that, one, they are not alone, because I sure thought I was until I got out of it and realized, oh, my gosh, this is a thing and other women are experiencing this. And I also felt a responsibility to let people know that you're not doing the noble thing by staying, you're not respecting yourself because I had no idea that I could get so sick and have the lift, have to live the rest of my life with something just because somebody wanted to mistreat me. Could I say he ever laid a finger on me? No, but he did everything else he could. I, I endured financial abuse, legal abuse, the gaslighting, manipulation, verbal, emotional, all of that on top of all the crap I was carrying in my heart from my childhood. So he put me through the ringer and he almost he almost got the job done without getting his hands dirty. But in the end, there was a knife situation, a gun situation. Authorities still didn't help me. I could not get an order of protection. It took me three times in court. It took me taking my neighbor to testify in court that he had told her and her husband, my neighbors, he told that he was planning on killing me for divorcing him because it was offensive to him that I I would, you know, not want to be married to him. So I was finally issued an order of protection that he had to stay 10 feet or more away from me, 10 feet. He could throw a two by four at a 93 pound woman and, and hurt me. So wasn't good enough, but you know what, that was three short years ago and I'm still standing and I'm doing better than I ever thought I could be. And um, so I'm using my experiences for good now and just speaking out about it and letting other people know that, you know, again, they don't have to be bound to those circumstances. They can make a change. That's a lot to unpack. That's yes. Yeah. (laughs) That's that is a one hell of a story. Wow. I I can't believe that you had to go through that. That's absolutely heart wrenching. Yeah. What did it take for you to escape that abusive marriage? What was the final straw that broke the camel's back? It was getting sick because, like I said, I at the end of 2019, my doctor sat me down because, I mean, I thought I had to get better. I had to get better. 
you know, I was a healthy person otherwise. And, and he sat me down and he's like, he, he did all these tests. He's like, Dana, your body is shutting down. You, every organ system in your body is at the minimal survival rate. And I'm like, how can this be? I don't have a disease. I don't, you know, I actually did go autoimmune by the way, because all this cortisol that was running through my body, my body thought it had to eradicate it like a virus or a cancer. So it started killing off all my white blood cells and a lot of my red blood cells too, you know, so there was a lot going on inside my body. And I, when you tell somebody that's, you know, in the barely in their mid forties, your body is shutting down. You're thinking hospice, you're thinking death. That's a lot. That's a lot. I wasn't ready for that. Nobody wants to face their mortality when there's no good reason for it. So that was the final straw. And that's what's alarming even to me is that you would think that that first really awful moment for me when he swung a crowbar at my head, had I not ducked, I'd have been dead. But that didn't make me leave him. All the times he walked in after being out all night with some other woman or God only knows who, that wasn't it. It wasn't when he drained $100,000 out of his retirement fund and didn't tell me. And I found out a year later by accident, it wasn't that. He's done all these atrocious things, yet it was me getting sick that made me decide I had to put me first. But I'm glad something happened to finally get through my head. What strategies or, you know, coping mechanisms did you develop to survive this abuse? <laughs> That's a tough one. The The main thing that I did to maintain sanity was I, I'm a walker. I'm, I, I was always an active person, but he, I couldn't even go to the grocery store to get cat food if we were out of cat food because I was screwing somebody. I couldn't talk on the phone. I couldn't do anything. But we had a four acre property. So what I would do is I couldn't get in trouble for being on the property. So I would just go walk. But I would do it early in the morning or like after around or after sunset when it was quiet, when there wasn't any stimulation because it quieted my mind. It was like the only time that I could just have peace and nothing and nobody bothering me. And just taking those deep breaths, it sounds so cliche, but just having the quiet and the calm, you know, gave me enough, filled me enough that I could go and live the rest of the day in, in those situations. Now, when you decide to leave, and even now, if you ever had to interact with your ex, do you still have to feed into that behavior to get any kind of response? Ah, uh, so after, after the domestic violence situations, which were after the divorce, unless it was absolutely necessary, there was no contact. And by absolutely necessary, at that point, our son was 17. So he was in his last year of high school. I had full custody. He didn't even try to fight me for custody of our son. He had no financial responsibility to our son. So um, none of our monies were intermixed. Um, he went his way. I went mine. So there really was no reason. He did communicate with me. He would send me emails or text messages. Honestly, I had to ignore them. I learned that there was nothing. If if I lashed back, it was only 
engaging in another toxic, you know, interaction. It was, it was unproductive. It served no purpose. And the other times when he would be sweet and, you know, I miss you and calling me baby and beautiful and all this crap to lure me back in. I wasn't buying it anymore because he could baby and beautiful me all day long, but I was done. I was completely a hundred percent done and I never wanted to be, I know nobody ever gets married wanting to be divorced, but I couldn't do it. So I just stayed no contact now at our son's graduation. Yes. We're, you know, we didn't have to interact, but it's kind of hard when your son is standing there in his gown and cap and everyone wants a picture with him <laughs> and we are his parents, but it was very minimal, very minimal. He had already had a girlfriend with him. She came over and said, hello, she was lovely. But then he clapped his hands, like calling his dog back, called her a name and called her back to him. And she got a little flustered. I'll never forget it. And I was looking at her like having an out-of-body experience because she just suddenly was, oh, I have to go. I better go. She was like so worried about, you know, not what. And I thought, oh my gosh, that used to be me. That used to be me, but since he's had her, he hasn't bothered me. And I hope to God she's not enduring what I did, but I can't be concerned with it. He's never taken accountability for his actions. Never will. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. So many survivors, you know, they struggle with self-esteem, trust issues after narcissistic abuse. Can yeah. you talk about your journey towards healing and recovery? Yeah, absolutely. Depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, low self-image, uh, the triggers, the trauma. I had all of that. And I, the worst part of it was the dysregulation. And for anyone that doesn't know what that is, that's just when something hits you so hard, whether it's that you're triggered by something or you have a memory of, of something or you just are ruminating over something that happened and you can't get it out of your head. And you just become so flustered that, you know, you might go into a panic attack. I had a lot of those, but, you know, I had to end it. I did not want to live in the past. And so what I started with, because, you know, not everybody has the financial ability, especially having come out of the divorce. And I was 100% responsible for my son and his after schooling and all that. Um, I had to start with just taking care of me. And that was step number one. And self-care is different for everybody. But what that looked like for me was, oh, I could watch what I want on the TV. Well, I like watching horror movies. I wanted to watch The Conjuring and The Exorcist and all these wonderful movies that everybody's probably um, taking in, it, it, you know, now that it's around Halloween. But that made me happy that that was something authentic to me that I hadn't been able to to do. It, it might be painting nails. Some people go for massages. Can I afford a spa weekend in Arizona at some retreat? No, but I could do for myself at home. You know, sometimes it looks like having a pint of butter pecan ice cream for dinner because I don't want to cook and it tastes just as good, if not better. So just taking care of me, filling myself with just little happy things, as silly as that sounds, put me in a better place 
to want to go into the healing journey because unfortunately healing people think you're just going to wake up one day after reading a few books and going to a few counseling sessions and somebody will have sprinkled magical dust on you and you wake up skipping and laughing and there's rainbows and sunshine and that's not how it works it's nasty it's awful it's like going into the depths of hell and dancing with the damn devil and it's ugly and terrible and exhausting but I was very fortunate that I had a few people, not many, because I didn't trust. I still have a lot of trust issues, especially, you know, when you consider that even my own mother, I I couldn't trust her to even take care of me. So I only had a couple people that I could completely count on. But those people, I always say they kept me going. They spoke positively to me so that eventually those positive thoughts were the ones going through my mind that I am capable. I am competent. I can do this. I'm not perfect. I'm never going to be, and I don't need to be. I just need to be me. And I think once I accepted me and forgave myself for carrying everybody else's burdens for so long, all their shame and their insecurities and their own past traumas and whatever caused them to mistreat me. Once I released myself of the burden of carrying all that in my heart and dealing with it, it just opened my mind and my heart to, to just be me and receive, you know, the care and the friendship and the love and everything else that was around me from the people who were there all along. I just was so distracted and focused and caught in my little, I called it a hamster wheel you know, of abuse because I kept trying to run from it and I was always in the same damn place. I couldn't get out. So it's just taking care of yourself and just, I think just being accepting and forgiving of yourself. I don't focus on forgiving other people because I don't think I ever will forgive other people that can't be accountable and remorseful for what they've done, but I can forgive me and I can, I can move forward. You have written a book Gasping for Air, The Stranglehold of Narcissistic Abuse. What inspired you to put this book out in the world? Well, like I said, it was just a responsibility. I had a degree in journalism and I minored in psychology at at DePaul. And I never pursued a career in writing like I wanted to because, you know, my ex did not see fit that I should do that. And you know, I realize now it's because it would have given me a sense of achievement and joy and success that he wouldn't have liked because he didn't have it for himself. Um, So I did want to be a writer. I never knew what I would write. And I never necessarily set out to write a book. But when I was typing out my stories, you know, from this journal, just elaborating on them, um, it just came to me like, this is a book, somebody will be able to relate to my experiences. And I honestly thought even if one person could relate to my story and could then have the courage to leave their own relationship and I saved one person from what I went through, then I'm good with that. But I definitely felt a responsibility to do that. Um, so that was my intent. And, and I'm glad to say that I've had many people reach out to me on social media and by email to tell me that, you know, something I I wrote or said did resonate with them. And so, you know, I'm fulfilling that promise to myself. And I'm excited that I could take 
all these awful things that happen to me and make something positive out of it. How long did it take you to compile into a finished product? <laughs> that was a while. It took about three and a half years from start to finish, I want to say. It was, it was a long time. Number one, I'd never published a book before. So the whole process was new to me. And, you know, I was not a full-time writer. I actually had to work. And then I was, you know, I, I got remarried in that time to a longtime friend, you know, had my son. Life gets in the way. You don't always just have the time to sit around and write it. But it also was something that, I mean, at one point I took probably four or five months completely off because I was having to delve <laughs> into some memories that I really just was having a hard time facing at the, at the time. And, you know, in order to be able to write the stories to the depth and with the rawness uh, of what I felt, you know, it, I really needed to go deep for that. And it's just, I just couldn't, I needed a break from it, you know, cause it was a dark place that I'd left behind. And, you know, so when I was ready and I took a little breather, then I dove back in, but it was definitely about three and a half solid years. What has the reaction to the book been like? Surprisingly, I mean, it. I want to say I'm I'm happy, but I'm sad at the same time because the book has done really well. I, I went into it realistically because I didn't want to set myself up for disappointment. You know, my publisher told me and I'd done my own research. The average book sells about 250 copies. And that's not much. <laughs> I never went into this for profit. Um, that was not the intent, but I thought, wow, 250 is not a lot. Like most people can find enough family and friends to sell 250 <laughs> copies. So what we're at, I think we, we are over 2000 now. So, I mean, I, I'm, I don't even have words. The fact that I'm in Podunk, Illinois with cornfields all around me and I'm just me and that anybody wants to read anything that I've written is just so humbling, but it makes me sad. It makes me sad. All those emails and all those messages I get in social media that people are relating to it. I don't want anyone to ever go through what I went through or even an iota of it. But because there is such a, I mean, it seems like an epidemic in itself, of people that are abused and victims of violence. I've read recently one in three women and one in four men are victims of intimate partner violence at some point in their lives. And that's that's a lot, that's a lot. So that's not a good thing, but all we can do is join together, help people get through it and hopefully create enough awareness that people will you know, be more, uh, you know, aware of how they're raising their own children so that they don't grow up to be these, you know, awful people who mistreat others to this extent. Yeah, I agree. Okay, Deval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dana S. Diaz. Make sure you take this time to refresh that drink. And while you're doing that, pay attention to a few friends of my show and we will be right back. Hello, Deval Nation, Derek Deval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. 
As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. And it surprised me. That's the thing. That's the thing. She just needed a big hug and to know she wasn't alone. This is the Life Shift Podcast. I'm Matt Gilhooly, and on the Life Shift, I have candid conversations with people about the pivotal moments that have changed their lives forever. I would literally just say, I love you. Those words alone would probably make my younger self like look at me like I'm crazy. I would just say, I love you. You know, I love you, man. That's it. As simple as that. Straight up honest with you, I would tell past Christina, cut your hair, do whatever you want to do to your body. It does not matter because it is your body. It does not impact anyone else and you will still be the person you want to be. We all have our stories, but through these conversations, we discover communities. We learn that there are commonalities through the ups and downs that we all face. But most importantly, we learn that we're not alone. I didn't know that I deserved it. I didn't know that I could have better. I didn't know that I was worth more. That's such an important point, that being in a place where I was low, just no other way to put it, very low, depressed in that six-month period, I would say that now, as a result of being in that place, I'm able to be a little more empathetic and understanding when someone comes to the table and they're a little bit down. I'd be like, girl, just buy some hair, stick it on your head, and rock it. You're going to be awesome no matter no matter how you look, no matter if you have one strand of hair on your head or a big thick head of hair, it doesn't matter. The Life Shift podcast highlights life-altering moments and humanizes the struggles and the triumphs through them all. And I can tell you that at the end of the day, when something is hard on us at the station, uh, we're all different people, but we sit down as one. And we look at each other and we cry and we laugh and we go through whatever emotion we have to go through to get through the calls that we had to see because we realize the importance. We tend to get attached to the worst version of ourselves because it's comfortable. And we do have a best version of ourselves that is available for us if we do the work. 
So I would say that to her. You're going to be okay, but don't get attached to this bad version of yourself. Please subscribe to the Life Shift podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to a new episode every Tuesday morning. You're very kind to the past versions of people, understanding that, you know, that was what you knew at the time. It took me a long time to come to that awareness and to not be mad at that version of me. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts. Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on warriors. We've got this. Janae Sergio, arriving. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 210 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with narcissistic abuse survivor and the author of the memoir, Gasping for Air, The Stranglehold of Narcissistic Abuse, Dana S. Diaz. Well, speaking of emails and speaking of response, when I told listeners that you're going to be coming on the show... I told Duval Nation to write in some questions and the female population of my listener base flooded my inbox with a plethora of questions and I oh, have got boy. them all here. Yeah, and just when, I, and when I say <laughs> flooded my inbox, I mean flooded my inbox. Wow. So here we go. All right. Okay. We'll start with the first one and I'm going to read it verbatim. Okay. Okay. Sometimes we make excuses for them to our friends when the friends react to the behavior. How do we not make excuses for our partner? If you're in the situation and I was, I think I had already said, we wear a mask too. We pretend everything's just fine. The only other option is to not do, but you're the only one. Everybody's situation is different you know, I was in a situation with somebody who wanted me dead. So I was not about to out them to anybody. But if you feel bold enough to do that, then uh, that's your option. But looking back, I would say, if you're with somebody that, (laughs) you know, treats you in such a way that you feel like it has to be hidden or that you have hidden it, maybe you should reconsider the relationship. How do you keep your sense of self while being involved with a narcissist? 
I don't know if I have the answer to that because I lost myself all those years. They don't let you be yourself. You can't have a thought or an opinion. Everything was dictated to me. If he asked me a question, he would even follow it with your answer should be that 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 I he would tell me what I could wear, what music I could listen to. I wasn't allowed to do this, that, the other thing. I couldn't read. I couldn't go on the internet. I couldn't have friends. I couldn't go. Good luck trying to have a self. So again, and I'm not one of these people who goes out there saying, leave them, leave them. But if that's the situation you want to be in, then stay. But you're not going to be able to be yourself. You're going to have to subdue yourself and sacrifice who you are are in deference to them. That's the whole problem. And I understand if you want to stay in that, but I would say, I promise you there are other people out there. If you want to be in a relationship that will let you be yourself and would be thrilled to have you in their lives. Exactly who you are. Next question. Is it possible to maintain a healthy relationship with a narcissist? (laughs) If you want to serve them your entire life? Yes. And here's the kicker on that. I'll add this, you know, my ex, like I said, is in this relationship. She seemed like uh, she was somebody who was catering to him, you know, and, and listening to him, so to speak. So I don't know if that's healthy, but if it works for them, that's their business. So yeah, I think there are people that for whatever reason are suited and perfectly happy with a narcissist. It wasn't for me. I don't like being abused. This next question is kind of a complicated one, but I'll read it verbatim. In the age of social media, a lot of people could seem like that fall into that category, but also some people are just driven, which is a great quality. But when do we know it is too far? Okay. So um, here's, here's a very simple answer to that. Narcissists are like tumors. You have a benign tumor that's there, but it's not bothering you, right? Doesn't make a difference if it's there or not. And you have a malignant tumor. That tumor is going to bother you. It's going to cause you some problems. It might even kill you. Narcissists are the same. You can have narcissists that there's nothing wrong with them. They just have a very healthy self-esteem and half of them really do look, look as good as they think they do and good for them. We're concerned. My concern and what I'm speaking about are the malignant narcissists, the ones that are going to use any type of abuse to manipulate and control you to fulfill their ego. That is a problem. So in social media, I mean, if somebody has a good self-esteem, even if you can say, yes, they're a narcissist, doesn't mean they're a bad person. It doesn't mean they're going to abuse you. You just have to follow your gut. And that is my advice to everybody. Follow your gut. If you are interacting with somebody and you don't don't get a good feeling about it, even if you can't put a finger on it, walk away. The end. Keep them at an arm's length, not your person. I think it's a good time right now to really go into what is the actual definition of a narcissist? There are a lot of definitions because there are supposedly over a dozen different types of narcissists. But on a very basic level, it is somebody that has like, I mean, has to, it is necessary to their existence that they are exalted, made to feel superior, treated more superior than everyone else so that they can, you know, feel like they are that important. 
That's why you see a lot of them in leadership roles. They are pillars of the community. They are on every organization. They are the mayors. They're the presidents. They're the the be-all, end-alls because they need to feel like they are all-powerful and all-important. You know, again, we're more concerned with, with the bad ones, those malignant ones. Yeah, the they're they're a beast in, in themselves and they can be very different. So, you know, my my stepfather that was abusive is what we call an overt narcissist. He's gonna be, you know, a lot of them liken them to our former presidents, that he's gonna tell you he knows everything, he has the most money, he has the best car, he, you know, I'm the best, everyone's gotta know it, and they're gonna brag about it. My ex was what we call a covert narcissist, which is the second most common type. And that's somebody that I liken to the character Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh. Kind of, you know, it seems humble, um, seems like he has low self-esteem. So it's poor me. Nobody's ever going to this. I'll never have that. But that's how they thrive on other people's pity because other people pump them up and then suddenly they feel really important and real egotistical and they go home and take it out on whoever's there, um, you know, to, to fulfill that control and power that, that they think they have now. Hmm. Okay. This next question is an interesting one in a relationship. How do you have confidence in yourself and your partner, but still stay solid without it turning into narcissistic behavior? Well, don't be with a narcissist if you're worried about narcissistic behavior. But I will say people can exhibit narcissistic qualities and not be narcissists. But I can also have symptoms of a cold or a flu and not have a cold or a flu. It could just be allergies. So it's the same kind of thing. And I don't mean to be so simplistic, but it's something people can understand. You know, I think it's just a matter of being self-aware. If you are in a healthy relationship, you're going to have a, a partner who is concerned about their effect on you just as much as you are concerned about yours on them. And that's where you get the reciprocal respect and kindness and courtesy, these basic things that we would like to have. Everybody would like to have them. It just seems to be so far-fetched anymore these days. But I would just say that if you notice, and I'm going to say this, I'm the queen of like anti-narcissists right now. But I have noticed even in my current marriage, we're very happily, re, you know, remarried and we have a very healthy relationship, but it's in the little things that I'll find myself being a little controlling, like, well, why did you pull that particular package of ground beef out instead of the one that was already half used and open? Does it matter? No, we're going to eat all the damn ground beef. But in my head, I felt like I needed to control it. But I realized, and, and this is something that I've, I've read in studies, that often victims of some sort of abuse tend to exert these little narcissistic qualities, particularly control, because if you can control your environment and everything in it, then you know what to expect. There's no surprises. Nobody's going to be a threat. There's no you know, threat to you then and your safety and everything. So does it really matter which package of ground beef? No, but I, you know, I find myself in these little things. So I just have to stop and say, okay, 
let it go. Does it really matter? No, it does not matter. So it's just, again, about being self-aware and hoping your partner is too. And if they're not, call them out on it. I'm not afraid to tell my husband, hey, when you did that just now, or when you said that, this is how I took it, even though that wasn't what you intended, you know, and, and, and have a conversation. Okay. This is a good question here. Uh, are there any warning signs or behaviors you've identified that can help others recognize and protect themselves from narcissistic individuals in the future? Yes, there are quite a few of them. And actually there is a quiz on my website, DanaSDS.com. You can take the quiz, but what I'm going to say to answer that honestly is I go back to following your gut because just because somebody is an, I can tell you all these red flags of what a narcissist is and what to look for, but it might not be a bad, per, he might not be a bad person or she, you know, they might just have narcissistic qualities that you can live with, but you know what, what you can live with and what somebody else can are two different things. So you just have to decide if you like, you know, this person or not enough to give it a shot. Now, one thing I will say, control. If somebody is trying to control you or seems to be overly jealous or really monitoring you. Where are you going? Who are you going to be with? How long are you going to be? You know, and they God forbid, if you get to the point like I did, where there's cameras and GPS trackers and timers, but, you know, any kind of control over you, that's a problem, I think, for any relationship. If they're trying to tell you who you can hang out with, where you can go, what you should be doing, any method of control, what you should be eating. I even had a guy once tell me I didn't need the apple pie I ordered for dessert on a date. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a red flag because I like apple pie. <laughs> this is a very important question here, which I, I, this is one that I really made sure I put in here. What is the best way to recognize narcissistic behavior and the best approach to getting out of the relationship? And what are some tools to help your partner work on it? Well, if your partner is a narcissist, they probably are not going to work on it. I'm just going to say that right now. Narcissists don't think there's something wrong with them. There's something wrong with you for not being okay with how they are. So you're not going to get a narcissist to work on themselves. The only time they will go to therapy is if they think they can get you a diagnosis of being as crazy as they're telling everyone you are so that they can, you know, achieve whatever it is they're trying to achieve with you. But, you know, again, you know, it's, it goes back to everyone wants these red flags. If somebody is trying to control you, if somebody manipulates you, if they are trying to minimize your family and your friends and outside influence, you know, for me, it was the phone. You know, I've, got to the point where I just didn't have phone calls with anyone. I didn't text anyone. I didn't answer texts. I couldn't be on my computer because what are you looking at? Or he would monitor my computer and check my history. I mean, anybody that exerts that much control over another human being or, or trying to manipulate you, even if they are not verbally abusive, even if they are not physically abusive, just be careful of that. Be careful of that. And, and there are definitely ways to get out, but you have to be the one to determine if you can get out safely. If you are not 
um, sure that you can be very, very careful. Um, but definitely there are, you know, domestic violence hotlines you can call where they will help you to achieve what you need. Um, and I can certainly provide that information to okay. give you in the, in the comments at the end. Okay, great. All right. This next question is an interesting one. I'm in a friendship, was in a relationship with a narcissist and a very vain person. He, in mm -hmm. some ways, is rubbing off on me, but I am trying not to be that confused with finally having confidence. Where is the line? The line is when how you are is harming other people in some way. That's kind of where I'm at. If you are intentionally causing harm to another human being, there's a moral issue there. So just watch yourself with that. And I will add to that. It's it's such an old adage, but such a true one. You are who you associate with. You know, for four decades, I was with abusers in my life that were feeding me with negativity. And you know what? I wasn't that much fun. I was miserable. I was as miserable as they were making me. And um, that's not who I wanted to be. I knew better. I wanted to be better. And since I've been out and have chosen who has access to me and who doesn't, it, it's very, very different. I'm having a very different life experience. It's much more positive. I feel good about myself. I feel good about who I, you know, I respect and like the people around me. So just rethink who you're associating with. Okay. How does someone get trapped in a relationship with a narcissist? Oh, it's so easy. <laughs> narcissists are pretty slick. They have you figured out before you've even said hello half the time. They know exactly what to say, what's going to affect you, what's going to impact you. They know what to do to keep you. They know that when they feel you distancing yourself or that you're not feeling as excited about being with them, they know how to lure you back. So the only way out is just to leave. And the problem that victims have, and I have been guilty of this myself, is that you you find yourself missing them or doubting if you should have left or wondering if it really was you, you know, because they're very good at turning things around so that you really do think a lot of it's your fault. And because you're an empathetic and, and kind and self-aware human being, you're really thinking, gosh, it really was me. Maybe if we gave it another, another shot, I won't be this, I won't be that, we could make it work. So a lot of people get lured back in very, very easily. And narcissists will always try when you leave. Don't think that my ex has not tried even since he's had a, another woman living with him in his house, I have gotten texts saying that I'm the only one and I'm the only one that'll ever be for him and all this bull. But it's it's easier for them to be with somebody that they have already figured out than to invest the time and effort figuring out somebody new. Mm -hmm. One of my listeners, um, this is a very interesting question. One of my listeners asks, how does one overcome a trauma bond from being in a relationship with a narcissistic abuser? That, that's a really tough one, too. That ties into what I was just saying, because here's the thing. So my son bought a house just this past summer, just three or four months ago. And of course, he wanted his mom and his dad at his final walkthrough. 
I wasn't really excited about having to be around my ex. You know, this man literally wanted me dead and and tried to kill me. So it was nerve wracking, but I, I had my, my current husband with me and made sure my son had a friend. And so we went and I left there. I actually recorded myself when I left because I was so shaken up that, you know, to go back to something you asked me very early on, I found myself, yeah, submitting. I, I was almost submissive again when he was asserting, you know, his fake knowledge about certain things about the house. You know, nobody wanted to upset him. You don't want to provoke him. So everybody just kind of bows down, so to speak. And, you know, we all become yes men and yes girls. And, oh, yeah, you're right. And and feed into it, you know, feed into his ego. And I was so angry with myself for feeding into it when I didn't have to anymore. But it was easier than getting into conflict. But it's like he still had this hold on me because I felt bad for feeling how I felt about him. It's this vicious circle, but I recorded myself and I was almost shaky. And I'm like, he could still affect me. Just being near him affected me. It just takes time. It takes time and it takes self-discipline. You have to be no contact. There is no good reason to be in contact. And I've had people say, oh, but we have kids. Yeah, so did I, and guess what? I was fine being no contact. That's what other people are for. And there's nothing that needs to be communicated unless it's life or death or has to do with some money that needs to be transferred, which I didn't have that situation anyway. But no, no contact and just be firm in yourself. You know, that notebook that I had kept, I still had that. So I came back here and I looked through it. And it's like my mind forgot some of the horrible things he said and did to me that didn't even make it in my book that I'm sitting here thinking, this is why, this is why I don't have contact. This is why I don't have to follow his rules. This is why I'm not going to feed into this man's ego. And I had to kind of set my mind straight, but that notebook helped because sometimes you need, you know, as opposed to having somebody telling you, you need to have yourself telling, you know, you the reason why you're not together anymore and they're valid reasons. So don't go back on it. Are there any books, support groups, therapists, or resources that you found particularly helpful in your journey towards healing? Yes. <laughs> A lot of us that ended up in adult abusive relationships had abusive situations in our childhood home, whether it was a parent with an addiction or somebody like me that was a survivor of child abuse, whatever it was, the crappy childhood fairy, funny name, but she has a website, she's on YouTube, and she does have a therapy program. And me being a writer, I did her writing therapy because um, I'm not a fan of traditional talk therapy. And I will say it was the fastest, most efficient, most effective six months of my life. I don't think I would be who I am right now, honestly, if it weren't for her. I would still be crying in the fetal position in the corner somewhere if somebody looked at me wrong or if something triggered me. And without her very direct in-your-face approach <laughs> and and... I mean, boy, you have to be willing, you can't be sensitive doing this, but she really just 
it, it worked for me. It worked for me. It, it just kind of set me straight real quick. But the writing part of it worked for me too. A lot of good questions, solid ways to really dive deep down into the root causes of these problems. But I can go into situations now where I used to isolate. I can go into situations that I don't even want to go into anymore. I'm not sweating as profusely. I'm not having panic attacks. I'm not struggling for breath. I'm not trying to flee, although I do still like to drive separate from my husband sometimes <laughs> to certain places, just so I know, because I have left him places in the past <laughs> by himself with no ride. But, um, you know, I'm a runner. But no, I can be a normal human being now and go into situations and be triggered and just let it roll and just be like, okay, I'm going to go have a moment and have a deep breath and just refocus and not let it get to me. Like, it's kind of like what I said before, you have to learn to say, this isn't my burden to bear. That is your insecurity. That's your judgment. That's your problem, not mine. Mm -hmm. If someone listening to this show thinks they may be in a narcissistic abusive relationship, what advice would you offer them? Um, I would say figure out if you want to stay or go, because I think we all assume that everybody should get out of those relationships, but not everybody wants to. Uh, my mother is a perfect example of that. And I know this because even though we are, we are estranged, one of the last conversations we did have you know, she, she did not want to give up her life and the things that she had, even though she was in her situation, married to a narcissist. And, and part of that was having to give up her relationship with me. And she was willing to do that. And she did. So not everybody does want out and you can't make anybody get out. So assuming somebody wants to be out, then your next step is to see if you can help them safely. But by helping them does not mean you tell them to leave or you tell them to pack their bags or you show up at their house like a crazy person trying to pack their stuff up and get them out of there. That will just get them in trouble, so to speak. You don't want to provoke anything. But I would say be their confidant if they need to talk if they want to share anything listen believe them um and all you have to do is ask them what can i do for you maybe they want you to call an attorney for them to see what divorce looks like what what would they stand you know would they get the house would they be eligible for alimony or whatever having that information will help them make a better decision maybe it's just being able to take them out you know, to church once a week or for a walk once a week. So they can vent until they're ready to come to you and say, this is what I need. But whatever it is, all I say is support them, believe them, listen to them, be able to provide them with resources. Every community has some sort of shelter or um, domestic violence unit in the police department. There's always somebody willing to help the situation that they can be referred to. Okay. What messages of hope or encouragement would you like to share with others who have experienced narcissistic abuse? Here's what I will tell you. I had no choice but to stay in my childhood home 18 years of my life and suffer and wonder why I was put here if nobody wanted me and nobody was going to love me and I was treated like a piece of crap that literally shouldn't exist. 
I left that home and suffered in a 25 year long marriage where I was abused some more and got sick. Three short years ago, only three years ago, I suffered the most domestic violence I ever had in my life with my ex-husband after the divorce, three short years. He had me cleaning toilets, scrubbing floors, working, cleaning houses in a small town when I had a college degree in journalism and psychology and had high aspirations for myself. He had diminished me to nothing because he couldn't let me be anything more than him. I am here three years later. I am not scrubbing toilets or washing floors on my hands and knees anymore. I am a published author. I never thought in a million years that would happen. I am publishing two, two more books. I've got the manuscripts done. They should be released by next summer. Never thought I would have three books published. I am remarried to a longtime friend and we're very happy. I never thought I would be in a marriage where somebody even liked me, never mind loved me in a healthy, respectful way. I always wanted to travel. My ex wouldn't let me. I couldn't go even go to my great grandma's funeral in Florida from Chicago because he couldn't let me out of his, you know, I had to be kept on a leash apparently. My husband now, we took nine trips around the world last year. I think we've been on five trips so far this year. It's so liberating and so freeing to live an authentic life, to live the life that you want and a life that fills your soul with joy and happiness and all these wonderful things that we don't understand when we're in um, a, a circumstance where we're victimized. So all I'm going to say is that was three short years ago. I haven't had a panic attack in a long time. I am not disrespected or demeaned or diminished to nothing on a daily basis. Those times are gone and in the past. I am not 93 pounds anymore. I am healthy. See, I, my face is filled in a little bit. You know, I, I'm, I'm able to enjoy my life and live my life. When you're in those situations, you, you don't, even know if you have tomorrow because you live in fear. I don't live in fear anymore. So just to anybody who's listening, just know you have the power to change your circumstances. And I understand it's not easy to walk out and it's not always safe, but think about what you want. Just ask yourself one question. What do I want? What do I want my life to look like? Because when you answer that and be specific, see it, you want to travel like I have? Where do you want to go? What do you want to see in this world? You want to live in a house somewhere else? Where? What town do you want to live in? What state? What does your house look like? Envision it and then go get it. That's it. That's powerful. That that's that's powerful. You mentioned him very briefly, but talk about your new marriage and your new happiness. Oh, well, how, how did that how did that all come about? You know, I, I'm going to say I got lucky is how it all came about. And I don't mean that in a naughty sense. I mean that I got very <laughs> lucky in, in a sweet sense. You know, I've known my husband's family for, I want to say, 17 or 18 years now. Um, and so I already knew him and we had been friendly and he had just become more concerned as other members of his family were as well. Um, we do live in a small town. I should 
you know, put that out there. So small towns, everybody does kind of know everybody, but, you know, he had just become very concerned when, especially when he saw the, I mean, when I dropped down to 93 pounds, that, that was within a two week period. So, I mean, it was really alarming for people um, to see me obviously very ill and then with the oxygen machine and all that. So he just kind of took a little protective, uh, you know, friendship with me and just made sure that I knew I could rely on him. Just like I said, you know, if anyone, if you do see anybody, just be there for them. And when they're ready, they'll come to you. And he was just a great support. And just one day it was, we were friends and we just kind of decided to be more than that. I actually turned him down though a couple times because I thought there, no, I'm good. I don't need to be married again and I don't need to be with somebody and I should take time and all this stuff. But you know what? But I looked at it and be happy. And again, I didn't just meet him. I don't think I'd probably be with anybody or never mind married if I had just been dating or I don't even know if I could date. But having known him for some time and knowing his family, that's where I say I got lucky because I, I had already established that foundation. But it looks beautiful. I mean, this is a man that, you know, we had an established friendship. So everything else kind of came easy. We just everything. And I think that's where we all go wrong. And I'm guilty of it, too. I think especially in romantic situations, we try to force ourselves to go on the second date even though there's things about that first date or the first time we met him we want to force it because we want to couple up with somebody so badly we want that commitment so badly but if you think about it when you're out in social situations and you meet somebody not in a romantic way but in a platonic way you click with some people and not with others and i don't know why we don't apply that in romantic situations you know, just because you go on a date doesn't mean you got to go on another date. It doesn't mean you got to marry him. I tell my stepson all the time, have fun till you find the one. And if you never find the one, then you're just having a whole lot of fun. But you know, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. We right. all deserve happiness. I just got really lucky that this guy was there and was patient. And he apparently was not going to let me go or let me out of his sights until I was ready. And when I was ready, I said, okay, let's see what happens here. And well, what happened is we found that we were, <laughs> I mean, dare I say a perfect match, but that doesn't come without its, uh, you know, its own little bit of struggles because loving somebody after they've been in abusive situations is not always the easiest either. You know, he had to watch watch me go through the healing. He had to exert a lot of patience and understanding about things that he had absolutely no understanding about from experience and thank God. But having him and having somebody to kind of hold me up until I could stand on my own two feet, it, it was it was definitely something that I think that I needed for me. So it was good. And, and it's still good. And my favorite story about my new marriage is, you know, just to tell people, you know, I remember having this really awful day and I was in a mood and he came home and 
you know, he always comes and gives me a hug and a kiss. Hello. And I said, Oh no, don't come near me. I don't even like me today. (laughs) And he's like, well, I don't like you much today either, but I love you. And it startled me. I thought, how dare you say that to me? (laughs) But what a telling thing that is a healthy relationship that you can disagree and you can maybe not like them very much that day, but you know what? You still love them and you don't treat them any less. You, you just love them. That's all you need to do. Right. I just love it. It's great. Great story. All right. So Pierre de Coupetan said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your youngest self. What would you say to her? Oh, there's so much. (laughs) I would honestly, I would just tell her it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. That's it. Because what that listener just said is exactly right. If I said anything other than that, it would change the course and the direction of my life. Did I want to be abused as a child? No. Did I want to be in an abusive marriage? No, I would have much rather had the marriage I'm in now the whole time, but I wouldn't have been who I am. I wouldn't be where I am. um, And I have to be appreciative of the position that I was put in. So, um, I would just tell her it's going to be okay, just so she knew, keep pushing through every day, because it will be okay, that everybody, I think, needs a little hope. So what's next for Dana? Well, like I said, I'm a glutton. I, I don't know why I thought publishing two books at the same time was a good idea, but why not? I have all winter in the lovely Midwest, so... I'm just hunkering down with my two manuscripts working. I just finished revisions on the sequel to Gasping for Air. I will now begin tomorrow on the first revisions on the prequel to Gasping for Air. So we will get the prequel next year, which will discuss my childhood and all that happened there, which primed me for the abusive marriage I discussed in Gasping for Air. And then the sequel will you know, discuss this uh, new marriage of mine and some of the struggles we've had and and another narcissist that uh, I didn't see coming. You would think I'd know by now, but it takes me a while apparently to learn a lesson. So, and that is not my husband, by the way, that is Mm -hmm. a former friend, but that's pretty much all I'm working on. As a writer, um, I, I am very fortunate to work from home. I do lots of podcasts and So um, that's what we're doing, just writing and speaking, creating awareness, connecting with other victims and survivors, and and just hoping to make the world a little bit better of a place. All right. As we enter the final phase of this interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Dana, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax? Relax. I don't do that very often. So Every day I have this terrible fetish. I am just sucked into Candy Crush Saga. I have to play it (laughs) every single day. I don't know why. And I'm competitive because I met somebody recently who said, oh, I like to play that. I'm like, oh, but what level are you on? And she was at level 3000 something. And I'm like, well, so am I. And I had to look and check and we compared notes and she was a little ahead of me. So then I had to get a little ahead of her. It's ridiculous. And I don't know what my obsession is with that game, but no, when we can go out like to a wedding or something, that's, that's when I let loose that I love dancing. I am, you know, when you're at an event and the, the DJ starts and everybody's sitting down staring because nobody wants to be the only one on the dance floor. 
I'm that girl. I'm up there by myself. I am having good time. I don't care how dumb I look, acting a fool. I am having fun. I love dancing. Nice. What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Absolutely. Um, I would say go to my website, DanaSDiaz.com. Um, the narcissistic abuse quiz is on there. This podcast and any others I've been on are under my press room page. I also have links to Facebook and Instagram. I do uh, post content daily. We have fun. We make jokes about, you know, there's actually some funny stuff about narcissists. Um, I do post resource information as well, like hotlines for domestic abuse and such, and just anything else that I think will be helpful and connect some people and, and provide them with what they need to either get through or get healed from what they've been through. All right. Dana, I can talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but unfortunately I have to wrap this up. So I am my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of earth? Be kind. Just be kind. If you're kind to the people in your home, your your partner, your spouse, your kids, whoever lives with you, and then they go out in the world and they're kind at school and in the church and at the library and wherever else in the community. I mean, think about how this could spread out like a domino effect. And I know it's idealistic, but it doesn't cost anything to be kind. Just be nice to people. Okay. Dana, this has to be one of the most important interviews I think I may have ever done in my four years doing this show. I am sorry for the mountains of shit you've had to endure, and I am proud of the warrior you've become. <laughs> Thanks for sharing your very powerful story today and for coming on my humble little show. Oh, I'm so happy I was here. Thank you for having me. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 210. I want to thank Dana for being so courageous and sharing her story with us. What an inspirational woman, and I hope we all learned a lot from her today. I want to wish her nothing but the best for her future, as Lord knows she deserves it. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for this episode to drop. Also, thanks for to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have. So please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there. And we have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that and be taken to our store on TeePublic. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, like Dana said, if you or someone you know is in a physical or narcissistic abusive relationship, there are many resources to help you, and we will have some of them listed in the show notes. You are not alone. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.